Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. We are going to talk today about expectation, the bane of relationships, and the boon of story. The bane of relationships? Well, expectations. You know, uh-huh. like life. Like they say, if you want to be happy, lower your expectations. Okay. Right? But not so in story. Okay. See what I mean? I do. All right. But first, what are you working on? Uh, right now, I am working on just catching up from <laughs> everything else <laughs> in my life. life. Well, you had to. You went to Palm Springs twice. Yes. And so... The rest of life got. Does catching up on sleep count? Does that like count as a an activity? It, it is. It's important. Yeah, it's and I had really weird dreams last process. night. Oh, so, yeah. Do you remember them? They were just weird. I can't remember exactly yeah. what they were, but yeah. How about you? What are you working on? Um, well, so you know, I I sent off the latest draft and woohoo! Yeah, and and, and this great thing. So here's some a little bit of my life coaching progress is that I was like, okay, I sent it off and I know that I need some downtime. And I need to do two things usually that I've sort of put off when I'm plugging toward a deadline. And one is self-care and the other is cleaning. <laughs> so I had this sort of couple of days where I did a lot of both, mm-hmm. kind of an alternating, like, right. you know, which is good for my personality because if I'm relaxing for too long, it starts to make me nervous. But then if I hop up and I do some cleaning... I feel better and I can go back to relaxing. Uh-huh. <laughs> so by giving in to all of this, because normally I would just keep plugging and become com- like absolutely depleted, um, I, I've actually feel, f- I mean, I feel tired right now, but I feel mm-hmm. fairly revived. And um, one of the things that happens when I'm in these deep revisions is that I realize, oh my gosh, I love, I love this. I love writing. I love the work of this. And I want to be one of those people who, you know, you finish one novel and you just like, if you finish and you still have a half an hour in your writing time, you, you just, just put another you paper in the typewriter. in the next pa- right? It's like, this is clearly a, <laughs> a pre being available 24 seven for social media and texting kind of um, creativity, maybe mm-hmm. deep work, mm-hmm. it's deep work, right? But anyway, so I want to be that person who just like keeps going. But I, and it turns out if I give myself some of the downtime slash logistical time, I can. So if you remember, you and our podcast listeners, back a while ago when I was judging a contest mm-hmm. and I realized that even people who were collecting rejections on a regular basis felt legitimate to me in a way that people who were not connected in any way to kind of getting their work out into the world or supporting other people's work. Um, anyway, the, those people collecting rejections were really impressive to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way that, you know, I teach it and I preach it and I, but to see, to be on that, in that position and to see that um, made an impression on me. And so I submitted a short story, an old short story to Woo-hoo! two places today. But That's it was fantastic. really just to kind of break through that feeling of, is it the right thing? Is it the right thing? Do I have to, you know, is it the right story? Is it the right form? Do I have to change it? Do I have to reread it like a, and edit it again because I finished it a while ago? You know what I mean? All the things that... And by a while ago, you mean when like you were 28? years ago. No, this, <laughs> this, this is actually a secret excerpt from, a, from the previous... Oh. Anyway, so I am 
you know, I'm launching my quest to collect rejections as well and to thus put myself into the category of people I admire. Well, and the other thing is that everything you learn about learning really says there has to be sort of this kind of timely feedback loop. Right. And for certain things, if you don't give feedback in a certain period of time, it really has no benefit for... You don't get feedback? Yeah. Uh-huh. So like, so if you're if you're a teacher or if you're, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. but just basically that, that some things you have more time to give feedback on, but most things you actually really need to have a timely feedback loop. And I think with projects that are large, it's really hard to get that feedback loop. And so... Like parenting. <laughs> right? Um, but there's even the, with well, that, there's, you There's can, a short and tight feedback loop, and then there's the, like, looming, decades-long one that you can never really know in time. Exactly. That's why it's so fun to be a grandparent, I believe. I know from not, not from experience, but from rumor. Anyway, back to you. I have no idea what I was just talking about. <laughs> feedback loops, the importance of feedback loops. Oh, so the thing that I was going to say and sort of congratulate you on was that um, I've always felt, you know, I think that I think you're a wonderful writer in a variety of forms. And I, so I've always felt that getting smaller pieces out not only gives you the practice of submitting and being in that conversation with the, the community, but you know, you are more likely to play something small and to get that positive feedback. And I think that's just in part because of the numbers. Right? I will say that way back in my twenties, um, which was which was a different era in terms of literary magazines and submissions was all in handwriting. Yeah, oh my God, like well, okay, we're not that old, but like there, but it was it was direct. It was like through the snail mail. Right. I guess why that's a little not direct. That's like less direct. But I don't know. Anyway, point is, I remember feeling like it would be easier to get a no- novel published than it would to get a short story published. Because you didn't like there were math? Two things. <laughs> no, there were two <laughs> things. One is I felt like I didn't want to sit down every you know week or a few days and come up with a brand new idea, story idea. Mm. I wanted to have the idea and then to work on it for a year or two or however many. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually kind of consciously said this thing of coming up with a new great idea is... is um, I don't know. I don't like it. Okay. So that was one. And then the other was I really thought, I think it'll be easier to get a novel published. And as it turned out, like, I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got an agent You also in got my stories 20s. published in your 20s. Well, like one. How many novels do you get published yeah, well, in? Okay, but I mean, publishing <laughs> one novel had a bigger impact than that one short story. It turns out that magazine that that one short story was published in still exists. Oh, wow. So... That was fun. I thought, well, maybe I should submit to them again. Literary magazine. Yeah. But statistically, if you have, you know, five literary journals that can host 10 stories each and they only come out once a year, you still have 50 options. Whereas, like, I feel like with a novel, you have maybe five options, five slots that are in there. And so I think it's a different... But there are more... People producing what they're calling finished short stories than people are producing what they're calling finished novels. Right. I think someone did a really kind of good debunking of that math, which is, you know, 
of the people who submit, like only 2% get read, and of the 2% who get read, only like... To submit to what? Um, there's this whole... Th- I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but there's mm-hmm. this math that was sort of about like submission math, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a small percentage of everybody who was submitting getting to the next step. Oh. And... Um, and it, certainly I remember also hearing this for films, but... Yeah, it was it, shocking to hear that some places stop watching films but continue to accept submissions even with fees, right? That just seems... No, that's not what I was talking about, okay, though. But that is but a thing. It is a thing. It's totally a thing. But what I was actually yeah. trying to get to is that the quality of everything being turned in isn't the same. So when people are like, okay, they only accept 2% of, you know, X number of things, it's like, well, they're accepting 2%, but... Of the 98% they're rejecting, like, 90% of people don't actually really follow the directions, submit things that are, like, in crayon. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of stuff that people do to undermine their own submission process. Yes. So as soon as you take away the people who are sort of, for whatever reason, selected out for reasons that really have less to do with... um, you know, the, the quality of the writing or the writing is so bad that, um, they don't count either. And I, and I think that that's not most of our listeners for sure, (laughs) but that once you solve for that, like the pool is actually much, much smaller. So if you're someone who is practicing and writing and paying attention to what editors are asking for and what your guidelines are and giving to the places you submit, the things they are asking for, not submitting a mystery short mm-hmm. to, you know, some kind of poetry sci-fi magazine. thing, right? Or poetry magazine, which people do, yeah, right? But once do. you solve for that, the total number of acceptances actually goes up dramatically. Well, uh, we'll, we'll talk, we'll revisit that when I get my rejections. <laughs> How about that? But you know what? I'm still going to be happy. Like, this is what I do with my mm-hmm. students is we celebrate uh, ex- ex- receiving rejections and the people who get celebrated the most for receiving rejections end up getting published the most. Right. They, but, but not, you know, they get, they collect the most rejections by far. Mm-hmm. But if you submit every 20 things and you get one thing published, then if you submit a hundred things in a year, you get five things published. That's actually kind of quite productive. Right. You look like you're just one of the most prolific writers ever. And I just want to go back. Um, Joyce Carol Oates now has a master class. Speaking of prolific writers. Yes. And she actually talks about the short story as a feedback loop in their trailer. I haven't gotten to see the class yet. But um, I think there really is something to be said for completing something, reflecting on it, setting a set of goals and seeing whether or not you had the tools to achieve those goals. And, um, And if not... Right. What what needs to happen next? Right. And I another life coaching thing was just realizing that how much one of my process steps has to do with some kind of external push, feedback, or deadline. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, so yes, yeah, so this could be incredibly helpful. And it just, and just even saying, okay, I have to submit X, you know, two a day. Right, is like huge actually. Right. But not that time consuming. What's time consuming is all the doubt. I think, well, there's that, but there's also, um, I think cover letters are hard. But the cover letter for a, for submitting a story to a literary magazine is like nothing. There's no, there's so let's do this. You, you seem completely relaxed. I just know that, you know, one of the things 
that has also shifted is now people are, uh, you know, you can submit to 8 million different literary magazines. And as we pointed out, you may be sending them to magazines that aren't really a good fit. Right. But even when you're sending them to magazines that could be a good fit, how many people are actually reading those literary magazines? And so when you write a cover letter, part of what you're doing is locating yourself as a consumer of their goods as well. If you can do that, that's fantastic. But here's what I want to say. Unlike a query letter for finding an agent, which is more like, you know, a dating thing. I mean, it's not dating, but it's a personal relationship you're going to have, right? And it, and there, there's a whole different thing. The, the short story is just this. Here's this short story. Or here's this essay. Do you want it, right? And the letter has to be professional and business-like and succinct. And absolutely, it's the place to say, I love your magazine. Or if you have a reason like, mm-hmm. why you've made this particular selection, you know, that's great. That just gives everybody confidence in you. But really, it just has to be, you know, here it is. Here's my bio. I mean, that's just, it's a different kind of letter. And people I mean, get, I get super that. hung up on And it. I want to say, though, that as a person, I think you had a parent who was kind of walking in professional worlds in a particular way that not everybody has. So I think you have more access and confidence in also, that. Also, I spent time in the lower depths of the Paris Review offices reading submissions to the slush pile mm-hmm. and the letters just don't have an impact whether it's from an agent or what, I mean whatever I mean it has an impact if it's already got buzz but then usually they already know that do you know what I mean like right so your larger point is just to say don't stress the short story cover letter exactly okay that's it all right so, so here's what we're gonna do let's do uh how long did it take you to write your short story? Uh, well, I mean, I this that I know it's an excerpt, but like, excerpt so, but if you were to say like, okay, this is right. like, you know, because you think s- I could write a short story in a week. You do, yeah, a good enough short story to submit. Well, good enough to submit, sure. Good enough to be accepted, I don't know. <laughs> but you know that whole sit down and do it in one sitting. I mean, honestly, it's not my form anymore. Shall we do a contest? Yeah, between you and me? Yes. Or between, with our listeners? Well, if our listeners want to join in, they're welcome to. <laughs> so anybody who's listening is welcome mm-hmm. to participate. My idea is that we have a contest, since you think you can write a submittable story in a week. So let's do that. You and I, next Monday, mm. will have submitted... To one place. A new short story. A new short story that we haven't started. Okay. And then we'll just talk about what it was like to try and get it done in a week. Okay. Does that feel okay? That's, yeah. And then what we can also do is reflect on it during the podcast. Can it be an essay? Or does it, should it be a short story? Well, look at you getting wiggly. (laughs) (laughs) I think all it has to do is be new. Okay. A new piece submitted. Right. And How many so, places should we submit by Monday? Well, I think what'll be interesting is is for me that you know, I I've done like, oh, I'm gonna submit this to twenty five places, right? When right. I did that thing. And I think what's hard is for people to know how many places should you submit to concurrently? What are the tools we're using to do our submissions and to track them and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I think that might be a fun thing to do is set as a goal. Should we read each other's pieces before we submit? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
All right. Well, um, we'd love to hear if you do this challenge as well. It might. Okay. If you find yourself challenging, let us know. I want to say that maybe our listeners' deadline should be Tuesday, since that's a week from the release date of this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. We'll check in about it next week. I, right. That's very fun. Fun live contest. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk a little bit about expectations. So somebody asked a question. Should I read the question? Read the question. All right. This is in response to our episode on scene versus summary. And during that episode, you gave a tip. And this person writes, I'd love to hear more about Angie's tip about setting up expectations and then defying them in the use of scene. She mentioned To the Lighthouse and a couple of movies. Can you think of any other novels that do that? I don't understand what that might look like, and I'm curious to see it in action. Thank you again. So I was sort of slightly baffled, and I don't remember our original conversation about Mm. that. I mean, I don't remember how you brought up expectations in that episode. But it seems to me like all story is about this. And in fact, so Ira Glass of Mm -hmm. This American Life. Fame. In an interview I heard Mm. said... Um, you know, each episode of This American Life has a theme, mm-hmm. but actually all the episodes have the th- same theme, which is, I thought this was going to happen, and instead this happened. Okay, so This American Life, there you go. You're welcome, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just, they're just so happy that our audience is, like, pouring towards them. It's, we're a source of growth for them. Well, I think the... I don't remember specifically what I was saying in that moment either, but I think if you open any book to almost any scene, if you follow (laughs) the whole scene, you will have a character who starts with an expectation and um, they either get what they wanted, but it doesn't pay off in the way they thought, or they don't get what they wanted because um, of an unexpected happens. obstacle. Right. And this is the whole thing. And we know this, right? As, mm-hmm. as readers of story, we know that if somebody says, you know, here's what's going to happen. Here, you know, I'm going to go there and I'm going to pick up this box and I'm going to run out over to here and the person's going to be so happy and they're going to be so happy that they give me a present and I'm going to use that present. Right. It's like whatever. And whenever someone's planning and they're laying out what they expect is going to happen, we know like with 100 percent certainty that it is not going to go the way they expect it. Right. You sense it. Because that's story. But we don't do that in life. Right. So in life, we're like, oh, I, you know, either you're one of the folks who are like, if I worry about it in a certain way, then, you know, I, I decrease the likelihood of bad things happening. But well, this actually those are, Just let me say quickly, that is narrative still. superstition. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. narrative superstition. Because of how story goes, we feel like if we're certain this thing is going to happen, it can't possibly happen. But in life, life does not actually isn't dictated by narrative logic. Mm-hmm. And so you can sometimes expect something. Now, very well, often. Well, I want to actually, and in life, I, I want to, so I did my fair flying class. I was feeling really good. I flew down to Palm Springs by myself, uh, you know, earlier in the weekend. And actually it was all really smooth. And so I got to the airport really early. To I return. was working to return. Got there really early. I was hanging out and I was getting ready and I, you know, got on my seat and I sit down and there's this, you know, very nice person sitting next to me. And 
And I just want to say, I just want to pause for a quick second and say that our listeners already know something's going to happen because mm-hmm. because otherwise you just wouldn't take up the time storytelling to be like and then everything went as I expected. The nice person was nice, the flight was smooth, everything was just like it happened on the way there. And it's like right. if you took 10 more minutes telling us that, we would have to edit it out. <laughs> and Obviously, that's not what happened. (laughs) So what did happen is we were sitting there waiting to taxi. Uh, She started talking about her fiance who was killed two years ago in a car accident. (laughs) And I'm not laughing about that at all. That's terrible. I have a, you know, I have my own sort of existential whatever. And so she's laughing because this is obviously the person that's going to be really most challenging for me to sit next to. Right. Which is what it's all about. And so as I'm kind of trying to console her and my own anxiety about her loss, you know, I was like, oh, that sounds like a tough couple of years. And she said, yeah, no, I've lost eight people. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I'm sitting, you know, and then the magical She's thinking. Like, I'm really unlucky. I'm really I know, un- the magical thinking kicks in, right? And so then I'm just like, oh, my God, I just sat down with death's avatar <laughs> and She's like just this really nice older woman who <laughs> lives in an RV. And it was so I was like, oh God. And then we start, you know, our takeoff and we heading out. And you know, airports in desert areas tend to be bumpy. That's it is just something everybody knows. Expectations. And, and, and so uh yeah. And so Here I am, and I'm like, okay, and I've been in turbulence since I took the class, and I actually have helped other people through the turbulence, but now that I was sitting next to Death's avatar, (laughs) I was like, oh my God, like suddenly everything I thought was going to be my flight was drastically different. And I spent the next hour from Palm Springs to San Francisco anticipating more turbulence or less turbulence, um... And it was like pretty, pretty bumpy and pretty bouncy. And as we were going through, I was like just saying to her like, oh, you know, it's like being on a pond. Like this is, you know, this is why it's happening. And I understand. And so she was having a really hard time. And I was, I was having a really hard time. And so I'd started it feeling really proud before I'd ever gotten on the airplane about my complete lack of, you know, that I just wasn't carrying that fear anymore. And then, you know, I just, wham, wham. And so that's, you know, life is that thing where you're talking about the expectation. It's going to be smooth. It's going to be easy. Like when we flew in, it was just a little bit bumpy. It wasn't what it ended up being. And then when we get to San Francisco, because then, of course, once we kind of even out, I'm like, ah, you know, now it's going to be smooth sailing from here. It's clear skies. About 20 minutes before we're supposed to land, the pilot comes on and he's like, well, it's going to be a little bumpy coming into San Francisco. We've got 40 mile an hour winds coming out. of." And I was like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) And, you know. Now, if this is a story, right? And as you evolve it, and because you are a bit of a natural storyteller, you evolve. So you're telling it to prove the point about expectations. Make and, And I'm interrupting you to emphasize the point about expectations but if you were creating this as a short story let's say Mm -hmm. next week Mm -hmm. (laughs) this week right there has to be some meaning that comes out of that 
right? And we, we, you know, we're such meaning-making creatures. So absolutely. So what expectation is doing is forcing us to develop meaning in a particular way. What is the value of the expectation if it gets thwarted? Well, and I think also that, you know, the sort of one of the purposes of story, and this is the whole sort of Lisa Cron question, right, that I just love, which is sort of why is it that we can get lost in story? How is that a survival mechanism? How is that a, an evolutionary benefit, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And, it's, and part of it is we have to understand how to handle the world when it doesn't go according to expectation. Okay, I just want to say I was just watching um, The Great Courses Plus, and thanks, Mom. I just want to say you are plugging lots of other sort of courses, which is great because there can't be too many in the world. Well, I'm glad you feel that way about the myriad classes available in the world. But the one I was watching was um, How We Learn. And so one of the things she posits, actually, is that, you know, we have all these conversations about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and what works and what doesn't work, but that we're actually, we find learning, and I don't mean this necessarily like in school, but I mean human beings, human beings have a positive reward circuit for learning. Which makes sense. It does make sense, right? But when you look at story and you think what story's doing is teaching, mm-hmm. then suddenly there might be a deeper level. Yeah. Which isn't just about like this idea of a simple narrative, but that there is a way in which story engages a full sensory experience. So prior to virtual reality, you have a full sensory experience, a, a an empathetic cycle between the storyteller and the person, so that they're actually practicing. They aren't just learning, but yeah. they're practicing. Right, and because all of those reward the description, sensory descriptions trigger the same parts of the brain that, so it's like scent. mirror neurons. That, right, a description of scent will trigger the same part of the brain that a scent, they, that a scent triggers and all of that. Yeah, so. so I just thought it was really interesting that we have a positive reward circuit for learning, and in fact, when you introduce novelty... Uh, it produces novel, novelty-seeking behavior. So say more about that. Well, they did some... St- they, the capital T-H-E-Y. Yeah, those people. They're those very people, productive. I know. They, they do a so lot of studies. productive. So a study was done on mice in a simple maze. And the mice who had had the opportunity to do a more complex maze were f- more likely to solve a simple one faster. So... They took more risks in the in the search pattern. They tended to go. So it was interesting. So novelty bred an interest and a curiosity and a drive for more novelty. So fabulous. So then when you talk about expectation, expectation is the opposite of curiosity. Ooh. I'm just going to throw that's that out. That's deep. That's yeah. like one of those things that would get multiply underlined in an electronic version of this. Mm-hmm. Expectation is the opposite of curiosity. So in a way, story suggests that curiosity is a more effective way to mm-hmm. go through life than expectation. Yeah. I love it. So now that we've enlightened everyone. Well, before we wrap up on this discussion, I want to say, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how as writers, 
or filmmakers, we plant expectations Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. turn them, right? So Well, because even as humans, we have this expectation. We're pattern seekers, right? So I think the most obvious way that we set up expectation is around character development. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the most obvious. Meaning what? Meaning that, you know, at the beginning of the story, the character does this. They Mm -hmm. tend to approach these kinds of situations in these sorts of ways. Right. And when we see them step out of that... It has to mean something. Right. And if That's it doesn't, an exciting learning then we're like, oh. Right. So either, this well, feels then, it, arbitrary. Then, it's, um, then it's like somebody getting the character wrong. Exactly. Right? If we're like, we're like, they would never do that. What the hell just happened? As opposed to they learned, they grew, they went, they stepped outside of the mm-hmm. bounds of what they would always do, and that's story, mm-hmm. right? But so, so story, so story, there is. We're sort of making the bold claim that there really is no story without expectation and a twist on that expectation, be it uh, the actual events or the impact of the events or the reaction to the events or some some piece is going to be different than expected. Well, think about this, and this is uh, being raised Catholic. Um, the metaphor of Judas kissing Jesus to betray him. Mm-hmm. That is a profound shift of expectation. Right. Because what does that gesture normally imply? I just and want to say I have such a vague, vague <laughs> sense of this story. It's sort of, it's like the Bible is sort of like classics. Where, you know, yeah, yeah. Ital- you know, Italo Covino the, said that a classic is any book no one will admit to reading for the first time. Yeah, and like the Bible is like the ultimate classic, right? But basically, just for those who are unfamiliar. I know he was like, he betrayed Jesus. Yeah. Right. Judas. But they were, I mean, that's the thing. Like, Judas and Jesus were close. And it's a they very. Kissed. In the Garden of Gethsemane. But anyway, the when you think about our expectations of what betrayal looks like, very often it's like something away from someone or it's. Stabbing someone in the back. Right. And so, you know, fair enough. So how was the kiss of betrayal? I mean, spoiler alert to everyone else like me who doesn't know. <laughs> You're a few thousand years after the story. So basically, Judas has worked connected with the Romans, and they're like, how, how will we know which one is oh. Jesus? And so he's like... I'll kiss him. I will, he, yeah. And so basically, right. he's got this gesture of profound affection that is the ultimate betrayal. I think we should use that. I think people have. <laughs> I was going to say. Um, and it's one of the reasons I sort of love the 70s Jesus Christ Superstar because it complicates things a lot um, about, you know, what was the relationship between these two people? Because ultimately um, there were ways in which they were very similar, right? And so they wanted very similar things. Mm. And... Um, you know, this whole question of 30 pieces of silver, what was that about? And it wasn't, you know, I love the thing about the 70s. If you look at the the Jesus Christ Superstar, it wasn't actually about personal gain. It was that Judas was trying to actually continue to make things better for the most people possible. So then it's like, whoa, if you kind of play with that. And then Justine, my friend, also had the idea that Jesus and Judas were... A little more than friends. With the kissing and everything. Yeah. All right. Well, if, <laughs> if this went where you didn't expect. I will also say, um, 
one of our questioner was curious about examples, and I, I just want to say, like, I think anything you pick up would be an example of expectations, you know, being, being, uh, you know, the thing that pops up is, um, a lot of times when you see them at a larger level, uh, those big turning points. So I, I was just thinking about room when, uh, Ma realizes that, um, her expectation around some of the stuff about how the guy who has, who has held her captive will behave is, uh, undermined when he turns off all the power. Right. Right. So she expects him to sort of behave one way and instead he's punishing it in a completely different way. And so that then motivates her next big turn. So if you're really looking for examples, look at those big turning points. Also, anything where you would say spoiler alert, right? It's like spoiler alert is you're reading this book, you think about, you think this is going to happen, you mm-hmm. expect this to happen, you know this part. Mm-hmm. Here's the part you don't know. It's a turn on the expectation. Right. So, um, yeah, find something that you love reading or having watched and kind of back up just before those big turns. And you'll see that the expectations, the bigger expectations will have been undermined or turned. Yeah. And you will see that they will have been built in first before they're undermined. Set up some payoffs. Yeah. All right. Very exciting. We've, we're, we're a little over time, so let's just zip through. Steal this. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to take and make your own? I'm going to let you go first today. All right. I read this amazing essay, and I will put the link in the show notes because I don't even remember the title, but it was basically about show, don't tell mm-hmm. um, and, and debunking the myth of show, don't tell. And... Um, you know, it's been something that I've been looking at deeply. And I think what 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 is true is that a lot of times there's really bad kinds of telling um, and really boring kinds of telling and didactic kinds of telling. And at the same time, um, a lot of powerful writing includes telling. Mm-hmm. And so I just loved this essay. And, and one of the points it makes is... Um, that the admonition don't tell, that second part of the kind of show, don't tell cliche Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. advice or whatever, is also sort of part of abusive situations. Absolutely. That's my kind of dark secrets, right? Don't tell. And so, and she sort of uses that as a rallying cry to say, do tell, like tell your stories, tell. And and of course there are still, I think there's a lot to say about ways exposition doesn't work or ways telling I think, though, and I think you've said this before, especially with show, it should be show and tell, right? Right. Like it's, 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 show and tell. Yes. But the idea that is that you can show everything, I think, doesn't always work. And when you really preloaded your emotional landscape, when you want something to just be shown, because sometimes that can be a very, very potent way of understanding, you need to have helped your reader or your viewer get there. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I really learned in trying to weave a more emotion, directly stated emotion into my book is looking at the writers I love who I think of as very delicate and very subtle and seeing how direct they often are, how <laughs> yeah. they will tell. Now it's embedded in a world you're completely visualizing, seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, whatever. But um, it's there. It's mm-hmm. there. It's not not okay to tell. It's just not okay to tell badly. Right. 
sound effects are fantastic. What the heck is going on? Anyway. Right. It's now um, your turn. It's my turn. And so... Again? I, yes. Uh, so basically, I think this week I've been looking a lot at sort of... What do I want to do with my life? I, there's so many things I want to do with my life, and I've been looking at all these different pieces. And the truth is, part of it is about giving myself permission to pursue an idea and see where it goes. And um, I, I'm a little bit loath to say that I was watching another class today, <laughs> and I was actually listening as I was driving. You did say learning, and learning about learning was your project. You know, I love learning. I love learning, and apparently... Apparently there's a neurological reward for that. Exactly. Um, so anyway, it was... Uh, you know, sort of talking about like when you take your theme and then you look at it in terms of generating ideas. And I think sometimes people are like, oh, I never want to start with this theme, right? Right, right. And at the same time, theme can create a sandbox for you. Meaning only that as you go through uh, developing ideas and being really organic, you now have some parameters in which to sort of search and research and fill the well, as it were, go to uh, things that are related, even in not so obvious ways. And and that, I think, is, was exciting for me to see because there's a, I, because I love learning and because I love these ideas and looking at the relationships between ideas, the idea that I could start with this theme, I know I want to write something about this. And to get that permission was huge. And it also means that you might bring together unexpected things because a thematic relationship is going to juxtapose things that might otherwise not necessarily be placed side by side. So it actually could be really creatively exciting to, to bring things together in another way other than some kind of different linear logic. Mm -hmm. So, all right, everybody. I hope that uh, things go. Hope everyone writes a short piece this week and That's prepares right. to submit it by next week. And uh, follow your... Expectations and be surprised. Bomb, bomb.